And we're in this series that explains the most famous sermon given by Jesus. It's a series called Visible because we're learning that Christians are called to be the visible picture of God's kingdom on earth. And so today I want to talk specifically to those of you who want more out of life. Recently I stumbled upon an article called Top 8 Things People Desire But Cannot Attain. It is written about an ongoing research project where people are asked to use one word that describes their greatest desire in life. And at the top of that list is the word happiness. Happiness, it seems, is beyond the reach of most people. And it's interesting to me as I consider the words of Jesus, which are an invitation to experience infinite joy. But sadly, most people live half-hearted, mediocre lives without any real happiness. Maybe you've heard this quote by C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. In this sermon, Jesus tells us how to live wholeheartedly for God. If people obey, they'll experience an infinite joy with many blessings. Now, I want you to try to picture what it was like for that very first group to hear the words of Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount. Many were poor and oppressed. Most were in a works-based religion. Some expected, because they'd heard about it, for God to send a Savior. And here Jesus is. He speaks with boldness about God's kingdom, and he proved himself with his supernatural acts. So people want to hear more about what he has to say, which is why they've joined him to listen to this Sermon on the Mount. Now, it might help you to picture it if I read the verses just before he gives this sermon in chapter 5, 6, and 7. We read these words in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And I love how Eugene Peterson writes these words or translates these words in his version called The Message. Here's what they say. He said, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. Those who were apprenticed to him, the committed, climbed with him. Arriving at a quiet place, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. So we imagine that the people nearest him on that hillside were the people that were his closest followers. But as he spoke, it's quite possible that the crowd began to grow. And here on this hillside, he's going to describe in great detail how his disciples are to live out their faith in him as Messiah. And it is stunning as we consider that there is a rigorous ethic for Christians that Jesus is calling them to and that this is a radical countercultural way of living. So let me say that again because it's important that you hear it. The rigorous ethic required for Christians is a radical countercultural way of living. Jesus is like an artist standing before a blank canvas to paint a picture. The portrait makes visible what his followers will look like to the world. And with each lesson, he adds a stroke of color and clarity for anyone that's watching. And no doubt, the picture that Jesus paints for those that will listen 
It's just stunning. And it requires every onlooker to decide whether or not he will join Jesus. And that's what this section of Scripture is about today. He's going to ask them to pick one path, pick one type of leader, pick one future. But maybe you've missed some of what Jesus has said, and so I want to just quickly review all that, well, some of, most of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. And these are summaries of all the sermons that we've done in this series, me and Jake and Keelan and Andrew. So we started on happiness, the Beatitudes. And what we learned that in the kingdom of God, every person can live happily, even those who suffer. On purpose, we, li- we learn that as salt and light, Christians live as a visible picture of God's kingdom. On anger, we learn that we live, we can live without anger in our heart. On adultery, we learn that we live within sexual boundaries as Christians, even in our thought life. On loving enemies, we learn that we love others, even our enemies. On giving, we give to others without anyone knowing. On praying and fasting, we pray and fast often without anyone knowing. On money, we spend money first on heavenly things that will not decay and cannot be stolen. On worry, we can live without worry because God will provide what we need. On treating others, we let God be the judge of others. Now, I want to be clear about something. As I've listed off all of those things that we are to obey and a way of living, we get into the kingdom of God by surrendering our lives to follow Jesus as Savior. So our entrance into the kingdom is by faith in Jesus as Lord, not not by good behavior. We choose to obey these commands of Jesus to become a visible picture of God's kingdom as a way of glorifying God and expressing gratitude to God for our salvation. That's very important because Jesus has listed off all these commands and people might be tempted to think, well, if I do all of those things, if I live within sexual boundaries, if I spend my money in a certain way, if I love my enemies, then God will accept me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is there's nothing you can do to earn God's approval. And this is why Jesus came, died on the cross, was raised from the dead, because he did something for you as an act of God's love that you could never do for yourself. And so we respond to that by saying, yes, I pick the way of Jesus. And then on the way, we choose to obey the commands of Jesus. And it is a rigorous ethic. It is a rigorous call. And it is not always easy. Well, we've heard these sermons over the course of three months now. But these first listeners heard it in one afternoon. It was a long sermon. So don't ever complain to me about a long sermon. And what I imagine that those first people heard, like you're hearing in this series is this uncompromising call to discipleship. So Jesus ends his hillside with a long section, which is a clear invitation to pick one path, follow one type of leader, and choose one future. There are two options. You get to pick one. As Robert Frost's famous poem, The Road Not Taken, says, our choice between these two paths or any two paths in life matters. Do you remember that poem? It's very famous. In the last lines, he writes, Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So with this in mind, listen carefully as we are going to read 
The end of his Sermon on the Mount, starting in chapter 7, verse 13. Would you do this? Stand to your feet just out of reverence for God's Word. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? Are figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do so many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So pick one path. In the words of Morpheus to Neo in the movie The Matrix, there is a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. Do you remember this movie? I'm dating myself some here. My kids have never seen it, I don't think. So in the movie, Neo senses he he is destined to save humanity from the Matrix, but he is avoiding the harder path. But he must choose the harder path to fulfill his destiny. The same is true for you. Jesus is calling us to fulfill our destiny by choosing the harder path of following him as Savior. Neil steps onto the harder path by taking the what color pill? You need to watch the movie, the red pill. Whereas Christians enter the harder path by stepping through the narrow gate. Verse 13, he says, enter by the narrow gate. This hard way, he says, leads to life and those who find it are few. So listen carefully. Following Jesus is a harder path. This is for one reason because it requires us to obey God's commands in areas like how we spend money, how we live sexually, and loving our enemies. But Jesus' followers do it believing God is establishing an everlasting kingdom where we will experience infinite joy to the glory of God. There is always the option of a wider path, but that path leads where? To destruction. And I get why people will choose the wider path. It is so much easier than choosing to obey God and being willing to live as salt and light in the world. If, however, you choose to enter through the narrow gate to follow Jesus, you'll experience infinite joy in life as you partner with God who is establishing his kingdom. And if you choose the narrow gate, 
uh, you will need others to walk with you. So this is why we have the church. We walk together on this narrow path that we've entered through this narrow gate. You do not have to walk alone. So then we get into the second section where we see this warning in verses 15 through 23. The warning is to beware of leaders whose lives produce diseased fruit. So these are people who appear harmless, but they're actually wolves in sheep's clothing. Pick one type of leader. You see, with his invitation comes a choice to make about what kind of leader to be. So this isn't just about me as a leader or Andrew as a leader or other pastors or staff. It's about anyone here that would call themselves a leader or who is in a position that's multiplying their influence in the lives of other people in the life of our church. We are the leaders. So for those of us who lead, our lives must produce good fruit by righteous obedience to the commands of Jesus. And we must all heed the warning to follow leaders whose lives bear good fruit. It matters, leader, it matters, matters little, little if a leader can prophesy or is on a stage preaching or cast out demons or do mighty works is what Jesus is saying. It, it, this matters little if there is not also obedience in the areas of loving enemies, dealing with anger, properly handling money, and all these other things that Jesus lists off. So it matters little if our preachers can preach if our preachers are unable to love their enemies or are unable to handle their money in a way that invests in heavenly things or behave sexually. So that first audience knew right away that Jesus was calling out the religious leaders of their day. These are men who prayed and fasted publicly but had hearts who were far from God. And it's a good warning for us to choose wisely. The leaders will follow and the leaders that we will be. If you are a leader or you desire to be a leader, to lead people to know God and to love God, the question becomes, is your life bearing fruit that is a vi- visible picture of God's kingdom? So you're going to pick one type of leader to follow and pick one type of leader to be. Is your life bearing the fruit that looks like obedience to the commands of Jesus, as, he, for example, he's laid out in the Sermon on the Mount? And then we get into the third section of this call to response at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus invites people to pick one future. Look to your neighbor and as, with as much inspiration as you can. Just say, pick one future. Come on, do it. Do it. It feels good. You yourselves can be a preacher this morning. So if you want a future where your life, the life that you're building can stand difficult times, your foundation must be strong. And here's the thing, you cannot control what storms you face. Some people will try to do that, right? You try to organize your life to avoid all storms. It is impossible. It is impossible. You cannot control what storms you face, but you can build your life on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. That's something you can do and take responsibility for. And we do this by obeying the teachings of Jesus. 
and we do more than just hear them and know them, we live by them. Listen to Jesus. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So I don't know exactly what your or my future holds, but I do know you'll experience storms. And today you get to choose what kind of foundation you're going to build your life on. And until that inevitable storm fits, you get to build the life that you choose. And if your foundation is not solid, you are going to be like the person who so foolishly chooses to build a life on a sandy foundation. And I'm talking here to anyone who will reject the invitation to follow Jesus and obey his commands. Your life will not withstand the storm because all other ground is sinking sand. The choice is yours. Now, I should pause here and just say that I know that there are some in our community and some that gather with us for worship whose lives have been shattered because for a long time they built them on a shaky, sandy foundation. And here's the thing about God's grace. You get to rebuild a life with a new, stronger foundation. And the way that you do this is by receiving salvation, entering through faith into the kingdom of God, and then building your life by obeying what Jesus says. Your finances can be rebuilt with a firm foundation if you manage them how God commands. You can build relationships that can weather a storm if you do what Jesus teaches. You can build another life, and this time you get to invite Jesus to be the foundation. You get to pick one future, and it starts by entering a harder path through a narrow gate. And the future Jesus speaks of is not only about your life on earth. You see, when you die, you will be judged for how you choose to live. This eschatological, do you know that word, eschatological? It's like refers to like the study, or eschatology is like the study of the last things. There will be a judgment in the end, and it will be like a storm of God's wrath against sin. And if your life is built on Jesus, you will stand strong. The judgment will not crush you. But if your life, the life you choose to build, is on some other foundation, you will experience the wrath of Almighty God. Pick one life. Pick one type of leader. Pick one future. So when Jesus finished his sermon, Matthew tells us in chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, We read these words. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So the meaning here is something like this. The ongoing impact of Jesus' teaching amazed the listeners as they became overwhelmed with his supreme authority. And I have in mind a picture of what this was like on that hillside. And I imagine it's the same kind of response that's going to happen in this room. It's going to happen at the 11 o'clock service. It's going to happen with all those that are going to watch church online. Some will quietly walk away, admiring Jesus as a good person, 
but choose not to follow him as Lord. Some will remain close with questions about what it, what it is exactly that Jesus is saying. And I imagine that Jesus is patiently listening to their questions, not condemning them or patronizing them, but listening to their questions and helping them to understand what he means by what he said. But some, some will decide in this moment to enter through the narrow gate and surrender their life to Jesus. So which one are you? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? Jesus wants more than admirers, people that acknowledge that he was an influential leader, people that look at the morality of Jesus and say, well, if more people were like Christ, the world would be a better place. Jesus is looking for more than that. He is calling people to come and die and be raised into a new life and follow him. So to close, I want to tell you the story of a famous tightrope walker. There have been many of them. I know some of you are experts on the tightrope industry. But one towers over everyone who's ever lived. So about 150 years ago, uh, he was at the peak of his game, which to me is a funny thing to say because it's like you're either in the game or not, like alive or dead. Anyway, um, his name was Charles Blondin. Raise your hand if you've heard a name Charles Blondin. Okay, a few of you. So he came to the United States from overseas and was fascinated, actually obsessed with Niagara Falls. And he wanted to cross Niagara Falls on a rope. So he strung a hemp cord 1,100 feet across and 160 feet above Niagara Falls. And he said he was going to cross from one side to the other. So he was quite a showman. So this crowd of 100,000 people gathered to watch Blondin walk a tightrope across Niagara Falls, inch by inch, step by step. And I just, I don't know about you, but especially considering how long ago this was, I just imagine that it was exciting and thrilling. It's life or death. He had no safety net. And he crossed all the way over. Tons of people, of course, were taking pictures of him, and, and he did it again and again. In fact, one time he crossed over with a camera himself and took a picture of the crowd, which I could not find. Uh, at one point, he turns to the crowd and says, so do you believe I can do this? And of course, the crowd said, what? Yes, we've seen you do it. He says, well, which one of you is willing to get into this wheelbarrow and go over with me? And the crowd was silent, except for one man. There was one man named Harry Calcourt, and he knew Blondin. He'd seen Blondin do this many times. He'd worked with him. He knew his, 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 who he was as a person. He knew his skill, and he got into the wheelbarrow. And inch by inch, step by step, they went across this narrow rope and got to the other side. The crowd went crazy. The crowd applauded Blondin, but only one man trusted him. And they went together on a journey that neither of them would ever forget. We're not calling out the names of the people in the crowd. We're calling out the names of the two people who did it. So Jesus, Jesus finishes this Sermon on the Mount. Everyone is amazed, but Jesus is not interested in just amazing the crowd. He never went up to people and said, admire me, take pictures of me. What do you say? Follow me. 
Whoever wants to be my disciple, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What will you choose? Pick one path, pick one type of leader to follow and to be, pick one future. Let's pray on and think about these things. Would you bow your head?